up every time he does that. It's Wednesday night. It's podcast night. We've got a really good episode, really good show lined up for everybody tonight. Uh, we have special guest Michael St. John, a legend in the business. We're so happy you're here. Uh, Chuck Ellis and Kirk Miner are here, uh, two longtime friends. And we've had our buddy Ron Burgess stop in. We got four. 1983 AHS boys here. Um, that that's trouble. trouble. <laughs> that is definitely trouble. But Chuck, why don't you go ahead and um, and uh, really do a, a better intro for Michael? Uh, back in 2012, uh, see, uh, around 2012, when I announced I was going to run for sheriff, I uh, I got to thinking about what radio station I wanted to work with, and I went over to uh, 92.7 and I started talking to Michael. And that's when our friendship started growing. I started seeing a person that was in the business for the right reasons. You know, he was there to help people and he wanted to better the communities and, and do what all needed to be done. And it was somebody that really cared about watching ARAB, watching Marshall County, watching these areas grow. But Michael is a, he's a veteran of the radio uh, markets. Uh, you know, like we talked about a while ago, he, he's the guy that hired Paul Feinbaum down at WERC down in Birmingham. He's also hired uh, Glenn Beck, so he's got a long line of folks that he knows. Uh, Jerry the King Lawler's a personal friend of his. Jerry Jarrett, Jeff Jarrett, uh, those guys are personal friends of his. I've actually been in the car when some of these guys call him uh, when we're riding football games. He's one of the guys I go to football games with and have a good time with. But he's a super guy, very intelligent. He's a Vanderbilt graduate, which means that he's smart. He's very intelligent. <laughs> I'm not sure how much he likes baseball, but they got a hell of a baseball team. I love baseball. Yes. That's, my, that's my number one sport. Yes. Well, he's wearing Maybe a Cooperstown yes. T-shirt. Yeah. That's, that's yeah. right. He loves so baseball. He, he is a uh, he is a, a, a stalwart in the radio community, and I'm, I'm you know I consider you guys some of my best friends. And back in the early 2010, during that election when I ran for sheriff, I, I, I gained another very good friend and. Uh, that's further good. Uh, Michael St. John. Michael St. John, we're very proud to have you on our podcast. God love you. I appreciate that. That's very kind. Uh, I couldn't think of a better friend or think of a person that cares more about his friends and his community and the way of life here in this part of the country than Chuck Ellis. Yeah. I mean, he was a public servant for gosh knows how many years. I won't give away your age <laughs> with the state troopers here in yep. Alabama. And, uh, and is now with security over at Sand Mountain Park and Amphitheater, which has been a tremendous addition to our to our family here in Alabama, North Alabama Absolutely. especially. And I'm just honored to call him friend. And when he asked me if I would do this, I was like, do they really want me? Of all people, they want me. Oh, yeah. And, and because of your background in the business and you're surrounded by big-time wrestling fans here, we're like, let's do rock and wrestling. So... We're, we're going to talk about music, but we're, there's going to be a lot of wrestling storylines here. And uh, there's a lot of people out there that have, have anxiously awaiting, chomping at the bit for um, some of these stories that are going to come out of here tonight. So I've even reached out some old Navy buddies that were big. You know, I was, you know, real top web in the Navy that were gigantic wrestling fans. So they're going to be tuning in as well. Yes, Kamala, and you were a giant wrestling fan, too. I'll get into that in a little bit. I've seen the belly flop. All right, so let's let's just kick it off and just start talking about honorable mentions and 
Well, first I have a something that I wanted to ask okay. Michael about. I know that you work for Jerry Jarrett, who founded the CWA, and there's just a video on YouTube when you were interviewed with Christopher Love, <laughs> and you know they say wrestling's real, and I, it it is real. But there was a when you were interviewing him, he attacked you, and I just wanted to wonder what that was like. Well, I, I you know he uh, he was a great character in the southeast, and uh, we lost him last year. Uh, he promoted in the, in the southeast quite a bit and did a lot of independent shows, but uh, that was a unique day on Channel Five because I was the lone announcer uh, that day. Uh, Lance Russell had had a heart attack, and Dave Brown was on hiatus. Uh, he had lost a daughter uh, in a car accident. He lost his daughter the night before her wedding. Yeah, was hit head on by a drunk driver in Memphis, Tennessee. And Dave Brown is a legend, of course. The first, he was the weatherman on Channel 13, and then later Channel 5, and of course part of the team with Lance Russell and Dave Brown on Channel 5 for many, many years. And this is a, is a great person, very, very close personal friend. But uh, uh, I didn't know it was going to happen just that way. Uh, when we had, uh, when we'd gone over everything, we'd, we'd get a format sheet in the back. We were at Channel 5 TV on Union Avenue, and he'd get a format sheet. And that day, I'd come into town from uh, from down here and driven up, and and. Uh, Jerry Lawler came to me and says, okay, we're going to do a little thing with you and Christopher Love, and he's going to get a little hot at you, and then we'll see where it goes. And like, okay. And then he grabbed me, and then Jerry, and Jerry had said, just, just, roll, just roll with me. And I thought, okay, big deal. And so uh, he got a little hot, and then I came back at him, and he popped me. And, and <laughs> the, the truth, I went down right away. And, and the truth of the matter, Jerry, after, the, after that segment, and I went in the back, Lawler says he's sitting in the gorilla position, which is the position by where the wrestlers go out. And that's not something that Vince McMahon had, had invented, as might be said on other podcasts. They were doing that when I was working for Nicholas and Roy Welch in 77 to 78. There was always the position by the door, and it's sort of a control position because you let your talent know when to go out and so forth and so on and you've got the headset on so you're talking to the truck or the director and so uh, but anyway I came out and Jerry looks at me and said you did that well and I said thanks <laughs> and it was just it was just a spur of the moment thing but I knew that because the business is so and in Memphis I don't know if you guys saw the Tales of the Territory yeah. first show mm -hmm. but the whole line was in Memphis where wrestling is real and it did. It, it, wrestling in that whole area, Nashville, Memphis was, and even down here in Birmingham and Huntsville and Chattanooga was real to these people. And uh, so I knew I, uh, I had to do what was the thing to do, which was sell the, the smack. So I sold, sold the smack and, and then later came back out. But uh, it drew money, so I was happy with it. And the card in Memphis on Monday night went up, so that was a good thing. I believe Michael was in that first episode in that red suit. Actually, I was yeah, in that red jacket. About ten seconds. Yeah. yeah. My, nice. my ex-wife had given that to me for Christmas, like <laughs> three weeks before, and I reward on TV that red blazer. That's a great show. Hey, Michael, you brought up you know the tales from the territory, and and I believe the second episode on there they had two on Memphis, right? And the second one was on Andy Kaufman. Were, yes. were you around when that 
Actually, I was not. I was living in Los Angeles when that happened. Of course, I've followed it. And I really felt like, in fact, this came up just the other day. I really feel like, and a lot of people will agree, that the Andy Kaufman episode with Jerry Lawler, the, the work with Jerry Lawler, really put Memphis wrestling on a map internationally. Mm -hmm. Because then it was back one of the territories. It was the last territory. It was the last territory to shut down. And uh, it really put Memphis on the map internationally back when that happened. And then after that, Memphis wrestling had a following not only for the Southeast, but literally all over the world. That was a big, big show. That, and they did that very well. That was a very accurate portrayal of what happened. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed that. And, you know, I remember when that happened, especially when, on, you know, he went the two went on Letterman. And, you know, at the time, everybody thought it was real. And yeah. it went on for, for a good while. Uh, you know, I know Kaufman showed up at taxi and still had a neck brace on, and he stayed in the hospital uh, over there in Memphis for three days and had the doctor's trick. So it mm -hmm. it, it was a it, it, it was really something else in the wrestling business then. But I don't think it was to after Kaufman died and maybe you know years after that that I believe from the show that Lawler said he wrote a book and let the truth be known that really it was all fake. Yeah, I mean, uh, Lawler showed up at his funeral, and Andy's parents were upset. They were pissed at him. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. it also said that in that show that you know they they paid Kaufman, but after he died, he had never cashed never cash a check. Mm -hmm. Never cashed a check. Uh, he was the Mark's Mark. I mean, uh, I, I got to uh, during the USWA run, and when when uh, Jerry Jarrett bought out the Von Erichs. In Dallas, I got to ride a lot of buses and a lot of airplanes and, and a lot of car rides with uh, with a lot of the boys that were there. And Jerry Jarrett, I remember saying in the car that one of the biggest uh, surprises he ever had as a promoter was the fact that Andy Kaufman would just keep calling him back. Can I come back? Can I come back and do this? And they were like, yeah, <laughs> because they were making... That, was the, uh, that run probably was the second highest gate as far as money made off of a of a program that that Jerry Jarrett ever did, and wow. uh, and like you said, he would write Andy pretty big checks and never got cash. Never and got Vince Senior turned him down, did he not? Andy he, Kaufman. Yes, and Bill Apter, who was the, a writer of all the mags back then of the wrestling magazines, heard about it and went to Andy Kaufman, and that was what they said on the Terrells of the Territory and was true. He said, uh, let me give you Jerry Lawler's name and number down in Memphis. They'd probably like to have you do it. And he thought he was coming for a one-shot deal. And then it came get bigger and bigger and bigger. And, you know, and, and, and Andy just loved it. I mean, he, he was living out a fantasy and a dream. Worked out for everybody. Wow. There, there's one more it says I got to ask you about when you got into it with Dirty Dutch Mantel. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I love Dutch. Uh, I, you know, uh, Lawler said after that all happened, he said, "Well, you know, he was shooting," and I said, "No, I said I don't, I don't think he was shooting." But and, you know, now that I know that he's done the, you know, the the uh, dark side of the ring moderators and all right. that stuff. Uh, maybe he was shooting, you know. Yeah. But uh, Stacy, uh, bless her heart, she didn't know what was going on, and she didn't know what to say. And uh, you know, that was one thing I always loved about when Lawler ran the TV in Memphis. I always knew there'd be some hot woman out there, and and, and the eye candy would be great. 
and uh, and, it was. And, and it was, and it was, but uh, yeah, Lawler was all about the puppies, uh, yeah, yeah, he was all about the ladies, you know. <laughs> I'll, shoot at, I'll shoot about Lawler, you know. Jerry had a heart attack, uh, at Monday Night Raw in Toronto, and the people said, Well, he, you know, he had heart failure, and he did, but any man that would take five of the little blue pills within an eight hour period. Is going to have it's a heart, heart attack. attack, and wow. that's going to happen. Wow, wow. that's so going to happen. He nearly OD'd on. He nearly OD'd on, he nearly OD'd on uh, yeah, on Viagra. Uh, he, <laughs> he nearly bought the farm on Viagra, but uh, uh, but uh, Jerry's a great. Uh, he's a great talent. He's a brilliant mind, and uh, I can't you know I can't ever say anything. I, I think the saddest moment I ever spent in in the wrestling business was with Jerry Waller was when his son Brian died in a jail in Ripley, Tennessee, mm. and uh, was found hanging in the jail cell. And there's still a lot of speculation as to what all happened that night. And uh, I, was at the, I was at the funeral, and Jerry didn't know I was coming. And I stood in line like everybody else, and I got up to him and he did a double take. He said, Michael, what are you doing here? I said, I'm here because I respect you and I know what you're going through. He looked at me in the eye and looked at we looked at the video that was playing and he put his arm around me and he said, you know, we're not supposed to bury our children. That's and right. To me, that is probably one of the saddest and most poignant moments I ever had in the business. Mm. Well, I understand because I've got an owner at work, Paul Claiborne, that yes. I guess two years ago he, I remember that. he had to bury his son. So I, I can remember relate to that all right any more questions for michael kirk what you got well uh you know i've got a a lot of things on my list you know if a lot of people nowadays especially young folks all they know is wwe maybe some of them know aew but some of the things that i wrote down go back to ecw go to wccw which was World Class Championship Wrestling run by the Von Erics out of Texas. Uh, you know, I'm going to talk about Southeastern slash Continental Wrestling. So I was just going to, you know, we'll get, as we get to our, you know, honorable mentions in our top fives, um, I'm going to bring up some of that, you know, the older territories and stuff. But, you know, I was just going to ask Michael if he had any stories from the uh, Southeastern Championship Wrestling. Well, I worked for Linda Marks uh, back in the early part of the century. She started up Russell Birmingham, which was an offshoot of, of Continental. And, of course, knew Ron Fuller very well, knew the Welches, knew his dad, Buddy Fuller. Um, you know, the amazing thing about all these territories, the, the ones especially in the South that you mentioned, so many of the territories were run by families. Mm -hmm. I don't think a lot of people realize that, the, the you know, when you look at across the country in the 28 territories that were alive and well in this country back in the, the 80s, the early 80s and the 70s and into the 60s, they were run by families. Mm -hmm. right. And the guy that sort of got the NWA together was a guy named Sam Munchnick in St. Louis, who I had the honor, and Chuck has heard the story, of having lunch with when I was running stations in St. Louis at a little meat and free, which is my favorite food, by the way. Mm. I love a food basket. Mm. But uh, down the street here, but uh, got to have lunch with him a couple of times after he retired. 
and got to visit him in his condominium and it was one of the most cluttered places you'd ever been in in your life because he saved everything. But he was a sports writer with the uh, St. Louis Globe Democrat and was covering the St. Louis Browns. And the Browns moved to Baltimore mm -hmm. and he was without a job. And he knew the guy that was running technically what was the St. Louis territory back then. And he basically talked him into interviewing for the newspaper and while he was there blackmailed him and said, hey, if you don't, you know, if you don't sell me the territory, uh, I'll spill the beans on wrestling. And this was in the 40s. And wow. people were afraid of newspapers, and especially newspaper writers. And so that's how he got control. And then once he got control of St. Louis, made it one of the hottest territories almost immediately with Pat O'Connor and some of those young bucks that were coming through St. Louis. And, uh, and ended up basically blackmailing the other 28 territories saying, if you don't work with me, and it all got, the, and when I say blackmail, not as much of that, but forcing the hand is, it, it got to be where every territory wanted their own champion. And you could, you know, and, and back then you didn't have the expanse of television. So unless you bought out of town newspapers, you didn't know that the world champion in in Minnesota was, was Vern Gagne or the world champion in New York was Buddy Rogers or the world champion in St. Louis was Pat O'Connor or whatever. And he wanted to get them all together and say, let's have one world champion that tours all of our territories and we'll all make money. And he was 100% right. And they put the territory, they put that together in 1956 or seven, I think it was. And uh, of course, the Luthez was the man that represented the National Wrestling Alliance. Luthez was a shooter and a shooter being somebody that really did the wrestling business to to win matches and to and to hurt right. people to, to inflict pain, and uh, and Luthez carried that that gold for a long time and uh, and and toured literally the entire world and became a truly world champion. He toured, toured Australia, he toured, toured Great Britain, he toured uh, other uh, countries in Europe and of course the United States and Canada, down in Brazil, and uh, Sam Munchnik was the booker that you booked flew in for a week or two weeks at a time and he'd send you to Dallas or he'd send you to Australia or he'd send you to whatever and and you'd defend that belt over and over and over again. But unless all the, or the majority of the promoters of the territories would agree on changing the belt, the belt wouldn't change. So Lou would come in and prop up your territory, make your baby face, your head baby face or your head guy look even better. Right. And uh, and and it would always win, but would win in a fluke way, or win on a count out, or win on a DQ, or something of that nature. And when he left, people, the idea was people would say, "That tough son of a gun, our guy, Jimmy or Jerry Lawler, could have beat him. Had another two minutes, he'd have beat him, and all that." And that just propped, that just bought the territory and got more money and more box office attraction. So it was a it was a great game plan, and it lasted for a long, long time. They did that with Ric Flair back in the 80s, correct? Yeah, they put the belt on Rick. Um, you know, the, the the Flair story is worth a show of its own. Because, <laughs> yeah. Got uh, a great 30 for 30. Uh, oh, oh, absolutely. <laughs> One of the best. Mm -hmm. yes. and, and extremely, I've known Rick for a long time, uh, uh, an extremely great talent. I mean, just, it was a, he could talk, he could wrestle, he he had the charisma, he had the look. I mean, the whole thing. The look. Was, I just got to mention, my grandson for Halloween, Cooper, he has really white blonde hair, went as Ric Flair. Woo. <laughs> He's not even Woo. three yet. I'll take every He, he looked amazing. Woo. He was walking around the neighborhood going, Woo! 
Yeah. <laughs> I love that. That's yeah. what yeah. great. You want yeah. a, a quick Ric Flair story? Oh, yeah, I do. Yeah. Okay. And, um, in 1987, uh, I was programming in Nashville, Tennessee, and we had to run a success with radio stations. And uh, I was offered a program director's job in Phoenix, Arizona. And the guy that was in charge of the company was a guy named Gary Edens, and Gary lived in Phoenix, but was in Tampa, their, their flagship station, their really super successful station, Scott Shannon ran in Tampa, Florida, was Q105. And uh, Scott was my mentor in the broadcast business when I was at Vanderbilt, and, uh, running the radio station at the college. He was at WMAK, and we've been close friends and still are to this day, talked to him yesterday, in fact. And anyway, long story short, they wanted to bring me uh, they wanted to fly me to Tampa because they wanted, wanted me to come and take the job in Phoenix at KOY-195. And I turned down the company twice before when Scott went to New York for Y1 or for Z100. I turned down Q105 in Tampa as the program director there. And uh, when uh, they opened up a San Diego station, I turned that down, which I shouldn't have because I love San Diego. San Diego. Yeah, I mean, that's where 72 God degrees year-round. Yeah. yeah. But anyway, I, I get on a flight, uh, and I had to fly. They, they wanted me in Tampa for dinner that night, so I got on a flight in Nashville at 1130, and the only way they could get me to Tampa in time was to fly me through Charlotte on uh, United, or United, not United Airlines. What was the other one? Uh, uh, the one in the, that was based out of Charlotte. Anyway. Uh, TWA? No, that was St. Louis, but I, for, I forget the... Anyway, I was, I was on this airplane. Uh, I went from Nashville, Charlotte. I had a two-hour layover in Charlotte. And I was getting on the plane, and I get on the plane, and it was uh, open seating, and I sit down, big old guy comes in next to me. I looked up, and I did a double take. It was, it was Flair. So he looked at me, and he said, I know you. I said, yeah. So I sat down. Well, anyway, he was going into Tampa for Eddie Graham to, to do a, a show that night. And we left it. It was in the summer. It was in, in June 25th. And we got out of Charlotte at about uh, USA, United, USA or US Air. That's US Air. US Air. And so the pilot comes on and says, we're going to try. There's a, there's a frontal system coming in, storm coming in. We're going to try to get out of here before. So if anybody, everybody lock up their seatbelts, we'll get off the ground. Well, we get off the ground. About the time we get off the ground, we go right into that storm. I mean... And, and uh, not that I'm a white knuckle flyer, but it was scary. And I'm sitting there, and Rick, Rick Flair has got his hands, I mean, he's squeezing so hard on the, and I can feel the, the chair shake. I mean, it was that kind of, we're doing the up and down and left and right. And, I mean, it was, for about 20 minutes, some of the worst turbulence I'd ever experienced in the air. And he was white knuckling it. And I remember after the pilot came on, said, well, we finally come out of it, and we're at our cruising altitude, and we'll be in Tampa in 40 minutes. And the first thing he did was order a double scotch. I'll never forget that. But, but, uh, but it's it just, here's the world heavyweight champion sitting next to me. Scared of turbulence. Scared of turbulence. I mean, and, and he had, a, he had a, a good reason to be. But but that's my that's my my first Rick, Rick Flair story. I, uh, Rick had come in to, uh, to defend the belt in Memphis for uh, Jerry Jarrett, and I had done a couple of interviews with him at uh, Jerry's house in Hendersonville, and uh, he was always, and, I, and, and to this day, and I've seen him a couple of times when he come come down to visit Conrad and his daughter, uh, he, he's really a class act. I mean, he's 
somebody that has abused and abused his body as much as he has for as long as he has, yeah. and having gone through a near-death experience that you know I had to go through last December. I mean, I respect Ric Flair for what he's done and what he does to this day. He'll always be very much on my... I've got him in my honorable mention, but he'll always be on my list. That's great. And I got, I got a Ric Flair story, believe it or not. I believe it. <laughs> <laughs> when I was stationed down in Pensacola, um, we used to go over to, to Panama City uh, for spring break. So me and you know, a handful of Navy guys went over to Pensacola, rented a room at the Holiday Inn. Of course, doing our Navy thing, you know, hanging out, pounding beers, acting like fools, acting like sailors. So we come up off the beach, and I guess it was about 5 o'clock in the afternoon. We're in the room, and we heard this bam, 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 bam on the door. So we weren't expecting anybody. You know, we were, we were all there. And I went and opened the door, and it was Ric Flair. <laughs> That's random. <laughs> and I was like, hey, don't get much more random. I didn't know what to say. And I said, you're Ric Flair. He's like, yeah, I'm Ric Flair. And he said, look, man, I'm sorry. You know, I, I you know, knocked on the wrong door, and I was like, do you like a beer? He's like, sure. So he came on in, went out on the balcony, and we talked for about 30 minutes, and he left. And he was a really cool guy. That's an awesome story. That is yeah, a cool story. I like cool. that. Yeah. More than one beer. Down to earth. As no, someone, as big, someone as big a personality as Ric Flair, it's great to hear the stories when, you know, he's really down to earth. Oh, he's a great guy. Yeah. It's funny you mentioned Pensacola. You know, Pensacola was a pretty good hotbed of the territories with Continental. And the, uh, the Welches ran that territory with Ron Fuller. And uh, uh, Adrian Street, who I got to work with a lot and is just... Uh, a tremendous talent. He's in his 80s now, and he's moved back to England with with his his wife. You know, he, they, everybody thought he and Linda were married. They were never married until about two years ago. Exotic and, Adrian Street. Yeah, the exotic Adrian Street. The thing that I think a lot of people, and he beat, he beat, beat testicular cancer, I mean, it, about 10 years ago, 12 years ago. Anybody could do that. That's one tough son of a gun. And I think a lot of people don't realize how much how much Adrian Street in today's wrestling world has had a hand in training so many of the talent, a lot of the talent that you see on TV today uh, that really he worked with. And they'd come down to Gulf Breeze. He lived out on Gulf Breeze. And they'd train with Adrian. Uh, Lance Russell retired down there. Um, uh, Austin Idol lives in Pensacola now. Uh, yeah. Mike McCord. And uh, I'm telling you, Pensacola was a real hotbed. And the great thing about Pensacola is before the Civic Center opened, they used to run the auditorium, the city auditorium, down right. at the end of Palafox. And it was literally on the, at the end of the street in the bay. And they'd run that building and sell out time after time after time again. Pensacola was a hot city for, for wrestling. Yeah, oh, back sure. in that time, didn't they float back from Pensacola to Birmingham to Dothan? Yeah, that was like the territory. Yeah. When Nicholas, uh, when Jerry Jarrett bought the rest of Nick's territory in 1979, uh, he inherited as part of that. Nick was running Birmingham, Huntsville, and Chattanooga, and Jerry didn't think that he had enough money, if you would, at the time, to to put in enough talent to run all those towns because. Nick, when, when Nick and Roy were running the territory of, of the Mid-South, uh, they, they were running weekly 
which was the thing to do back then. They had weekly TV, so they ran weekly house, uh, shows, house shows as well. And it was Monday night was Memphis and Birmingham. Tuesday night was Louisville and Nashville. Wednesday night was Chattanooga and Evansville. Thursday night would be once a month in Lexington, once a month in Tupelo, once a month in, uh, in uh, uh, Tupelo, one, I'm sorry, once a month in Lexington, once a month in Tupelo, once a month in Montgomery, and I'm trying to think of what the fourth city was. And then Friday night were spot shows all over the territory. They'd run an right. or they'd run Oxford, Oxford or Oxford or yeah. someplace like that. And Saturday was TV. Mm -hmm. And uh, the TVs, it was interesting because Nick would do TV in Nashville at 11. These were live studio shows. So he was on Channel 8, which became Channel 2 in Nashville, at 11 o'clock on Saturday morning live. He would run uh, Chattanooga at 1 o'clock, which was 2 o'clock Chattanooga time, with Harry Thornton doing the play-by-play. -play. They would run Huntsville with Grady Reeves at 5 o'clock up on... Up on Montecino Mountain, yeah. in a studio not much bigger than this room, uh, at Channel 19, and then they would run at 10 o'clock that night with Sterling Brewer on Channel 42 in Birmingham. So depending on what talent was making what show, you would see Jackie Fargo in Nashville, then you'd see him in Huntsville, then you'd see him in Birmingham on the same day. And and the way I got hip to what wrestling was all about, I had an uncle that was 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 into it. And I got into it because he used to watch TV. And then I realized, you know, Huntsville was one of the first television markets in America to have cable TV. People don't realize that, but cable TV came to Huntsville in 1961. But it wasn't cable like we get it now off a of satellite. It was literally a cable. Mm. And they had a master antenna that sat next to the Burrett Museum up on Burrett Mountain. Mm -hmm. And they had antennas that would pick up two, four, and five out of Nashville, would pick up 13 and five out of Memphis, would pick up 42, six, and 13 out of Birmingham, and then would turn around and pick up three, nine, and 11 out of Chattanooga. And the cable came into your TV, and it was on the old dial, you know, you had two through 12, and mm -hmm. still know, I know what happened to channel one, but you had <laughs> two from 12, and every time you clicked, you'd have, a TV show from another one of these network stations. Wow. Well, the guy that ran the, the, the TV master antenna, that owned the antenna, uh, Gresham in Huntsville, they would they had a deal where if the NBC show was showing, uh, say, a, a, a primetime NBC show, and I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to recall one right at the moment, but it, the same show was running on the NBC affiliate in in uh, Nashville, which was Channel 4, and the NBC affiliate in Chattanooga, which was Channel 12, and the NBC affiliate in Birmingham, which was Channel 13, they would run the Birmingham station because it was the closest to Huntsville. Now remember, in 1961, Huntsville only had one TV station, and that was Way TV, Channel 31, who had two networks, by the way. They carried part of the ABC programming and part of the CBS programming. Mm. And then Channel 19 came on the air in 62, and uh, they took the CBS network. So it was one of these things where you'd literally have a guy with a patch panel, and he'd have to change the channel from Nashville NBC to Birmingham NBC wow. as to not <laughs> circumvent the coverage, quote-unquote, that the FCC allows for your TV stations. So it was sort of a complicated thing, but it was a very simple thing because Huntsville had one TV station, but 
nobody wants to watch one TV station, so they just piped in others. And so with that being said, all of those wrestling shows I just mentioned as a kid, as a 10, 11, 12-year-old kid, I'm watching every Saturday on TV. Yeah. So great. what they do in Nashville at 11 o'clock, holy shit, they're doing that in, excuse me, holy yeah, hell, they're doing uh, that in Birmingham at 11 o'clock, uh, 10 o'clock that night. That was the golden era of TV. I grew up watching Georgia Championship Wrestling. Gordon yeah, yeah, Gordon Soley. Yeah. And now we have a thousand channels, and I can't ever find shit to watch. <laughs> <laughs> it was well, so much simpler then. Well, I know when we were growing up, you're talking about, you know, I can remember watching wrestling on Channel 6. Yes. Mm -hmm. It'd either come on Saturday morning or it'd come on 1030 at night on a mm -hmm. Saturday. And I remember coming in from whatever we had been doing, turn it over on Channel 6, and there, there, there would be, you know, Southeastern or Continental or whatever it's called. Yeah. 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 Now, yeah, now Continental, when, once the Knicks sold the territory to Jerry, Jerry gave up the cities to Continental. To the Fullers, and you got to remember the Jarretts and the Fullers are kin; they're first cousins, so they're, it's a family thing. So, uh, basically, he gave Ron Fuller, and 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 actually Jimmy Golden's daddy was the promoter then, but he gave him uh, Montgomery, Birmingham. Uh, they already had Dopin, gave Tuscaloosa, and then he gave Chattanooga to Ron Fuller's brother, who was running Knoxville at the time, and so Knoxville, Chattanooga was a, a little territory. But quick Gordon Soley story, I, I got to appear on, a, they did a, Jerry Jarrett did a thing with Ole Anderson where they were going to run Chattanooga, and it was a, a seven-week adventure, and that was the play-by-play -play guy at, at a whopping 26 years old, and, and uh, they invited me down to, to Georgia Championship Wrestling with Gordon Soley, which, oh my God. You know, That's the top of the heat. Yeah, I mean, that was it for me. I went down to, to Techwood Drive, and uh, and Gordon was was another one of those nice guy people that you know there nobody says anything bad about Gordon Zola mm -hmm. because there's nothing bad to say about Gordon Zola, but I never I never knew that he had a false leg, and I was in my Winnebago I had a Winnebago Warrior, and my wife mm -hmm. and I and uh, our son at the time were on our way to uh, to Panama City for summer vacation and uh, went did the show in in Chattanooga and then went down to to Techwood Drive and did an appearance if you would, and Gordon brought me out, and at the end of the show, uh, we were talking, and he thanked me and everything, and then they were talking, he said, Gordon, how are you getting to the airport? Well, I don't have a ride, I, I figure I'll just call a cab, and I went, wait a minute, I said, I got, we're headed that way, we're headed south to Florida, I'll be more than happy to drop you off. Yeah. Well, I had a Winnebago Warrior, and not knowing <laughs> that he had a false leg, it was difficult for him to get into the yeah, so they went to Vega, but what he did, and we had a great drive to the to the airport. But a lot of people don't know that Gordon also wrote children's books. I didn't know and, that. And uh, he was a great author. He and his wife wrote children's books. Oh, that's cool. And uh, there's still a lot of them that are still in publication. But a great guy and a great, you know, the great beauty of, of Gordon Soli was he was so understated. I mm -hmm. mean, he would call every hole and he would tell you what's happened. But you very rarely ever see him get flustered or get no. He was over just the top. He smooth. Was Who was his sidekick? Well, he had several. Uh, he the had guy a, that used to say, 
Don't miss it. Be there. Don't miss it. Be there. And yeah. then would announce what was going to be playing at the who was wrestling at the Omni. Uh, I'm having a senior moment here. Uh, <laughs> so it was a dark haired guy, big fella. Yeah, yeah. And at one time he was the play by play guy for Georgia Tech and got fired because he was hitting on a cheerleader. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Typical wrestling. Yeah. And to be honest with you, uh, he is one. I, I don't even have a handful of people that I never liked in the wrestling business, but. Uh, he was one of them. He was one of them. Okay. Uh, uh, he worked for Ann Gunkel when Ann was running uh, opposition, uh, Ray Gunkel's wife, uh, to Georgia Championship Wrestling. And it was on Channel 17 right after uh, uh, Georgia Championship Wrestling on Saturday nights. And uh, Eddie, uh, God, Miller was his last name. Uh, God. Okay, but anyway. Uh, Ann Gunkel had Thunderbolt Patterson. I remember Thunderbolt. Originally had Wrestling 2. My favorite wrestler of all time is Mr. Wrestling Number 2. Really? Mm -hmm. Johnny Walker. Yep. Yeah. Uh, and Eddie, his first name was Eddie. I want to say it was Eddie, but it wasn't Eddie Miller. But, I got, but anyway, he was just an ass. I mean, he looked down on everybody. He, he never was nice to me. He would cuss Gordon. I saw him. Literally off camera, Cus Gordon, just not a nice, not a nice person. Mm. But uh, Ann Gunkel uh, uh, hired me for th two weeks to come down to Atlanta. Her her regular announcer got sick, and this guy thought he was going to do the commentary, and she didn't. And I think it pissed him off that he she would bring in somebody from Nashville to do the TV for a couple of weeks. But I did get to do a couple of shows for Ann Gunkel, and she had a lot of good talent. Uh, that's where I first met Tony Atlas. And worked with Tony. He Alex. started out as a masked wrestler known as Black Atlas. Right, Black Atlas. And then got his mask ripped off in a match and became Tony Atlas. He was really big and built for his time. Yes. But I, I'm a generation removed from these guys. My memories were watching WCW on Saturday mornings. Mm -hmm. And my only memories of the AWA were from magazines that I bought because it was different regions. And I knew all the wrestlers, but I never got to see them. I thought you only read, like, National Geographic. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, well, at least I can read. <laughs> well, you're talking about Gordon Solich, something that I didn't know. And, you know, I used to follow, you know, Georgia Championship Wrestling religiously. Mm -hmm. Is on Tales from the Territories, I never knew that Soli was actually in, CWF, yeah, which was a ter territory in Tampa, mm -hmm. which is called Champ Championship Wrestling from Florida. Correct. And you know, I saw Dusty Rhodes on there too. I never knew Dusty Rhodes. American Dream, if you will. <laughs> one one of the things, and, and during that that period of time, uh, wrestling really changed when TBS took it on the worldwide or. Worldwide or sort of countrywide, and that was a lot of people look and say, "Well, Vince killed the territories." Vince didn't kill the territories. Oversaturation of wrestling killed the territories. Right. And in uh, Georgia Championship Wrestling, you had influence because Eddie Graham was good friends with Jim Barnett, who was running Georgia Championship Wrestling, and he was also good friends with the Crockett's. And so you had uh, you had good good talent coming in for that national show. And that was really the beginning of the of the decline of the territories, because all of your big stars. Well, we had one right in Nick Goulas had one, and Jerry Jerry had one in Tommy Rich, 
We had Tommy Rich would have been the big baby face. Not Jerry Lawler, but Tommy Rich was the big baby face when Tommy Rich left the territory. And he went to Georgia Championship Wrestling, and then, of course, they put the belt on him for 15 minutes. And, and, and I mean, he had the look, and he could work, and, and Tommy could sell, and, and he could talk, and he, he had it. Somebody said fired up. Yeah. Well, and TBS is one of the first national TVs. Absolutely. Stations. I mean, because that's why there's so many Braves fans across the country. Because they, that and WGN was one of the first. America's Chicago. Yeah. And Chicago would not air wrestling, which was, and it went back to, (laughs) back to the 50s because the promoter had, had put, uh, in fact, there was a national wrestling show on the Liberty Network in the early 50s in black and white. There's some great film on that. Lynn Rossi mm. uh, from, that wrestled in this area was part of that as a young man. And uh, the guy that promoted the Chicago market, and I can't recall his name right now, pissed off WGN. I mean, you know, he had it on GN and all the Liberty Network stations nationwide, and he hacked them off. And... Uh, the guy that did the play-by-play was a talk. It ended up being a national talk show host. And again, I'm getting old and names are escaping. The Springer. No, no, no. This Springer. was this was in the '50s and '60s. Oh, okay. um, God, I can see him and I can't recall his name. But it, he was it, Steve. Uh, Allen. No, it no. wasn't Steve no. Allen. But no. it's that same on. genre, yeah. that same era. <laughs> uh, but uh, but anyway, that yeah, t- the TBS shows that you guys are talking about. That really was exposing that much good talent sort of killed off the territories early on. Mm. Fascinating. This is a history lesson. Yeah. This is good stuff. I'm he's got he's Yeah. Anybody got else, anything else to ask Mike? Well, and, and the, the USWA where you worked early on or later on became a talent exchange for the WWF. It, it was a, uh, yeah, it, it ended up as the... As the, and again, that was at the very end of the of the territories, and, the, and Jerry Jarrett was holding on for dear life, and then he moved to, to Florida and turned everything over to Jerry. Jerry Jarrett and Jerry Lawler were partners. Jerry Jarrett got the west the west end of the Nick Gulas territory from Nick in 1978 by hook and by crook, not by Jerry Jarrett, but Nick. Jerry had paid Nick a fifty thousand dollars in 1975. Uh, to buy, quote-unquote, half of the territory, which was the Memphis Inn. Now, remember Roy Welch, who was Nick Gulas's partner from 1948 until he went out of business in 1980. Uh, Roy Welch was Jerry Jarrett's uncle. Jerry Jarrett's mother was Nick, was Jerry Jarrett's mother was Roy Welch's sister. And uh, Roy became senile and had dementia. And Nick was running everything and trying to put his son George on. Mm. And so Jerry went to him, and Jerry had been the booker in Memphis and said, I would like to buy half the territory. I want to buy Uncle Roy's part of the territory. And supposedly, it was a handshake deal, and Jerry gave Nick 50 grand. And then when it was time to Nick to sell, that he was started talking about selling out, Jerry said, well, I got half the territory, I'll buy the other half. And he said, no, you didn't buy half the territory. You bought an option to buy half the territory. And he went to court. Cecil Branstetter was the lawyer for Jerry Jerry. And uh, as a result, Jerry won the case, but didn't win any money back from Nick. And then ultimately, he said, screw this. I'm going to take Memphis and Louisville and Evansville and Tupelo. And that's what he did, Jonesboro, Arkansas. 
and he mm -hmm. created the west side of the, the, of the territory, which became the CWA, which then at the end became the USWA. But there was a lot of talent that filtered through the USWA to the WWF. And that was because Jerry Lawler, uh, uh, Nick, or, uh, or Vince had wanted to hire Jerry or to bring Jerry in as a talent for a long time, and Jerry kept. Uh, Jerry was happy being a big fish in a little pond in Memphis. And he didn't have to, you know, he'd, he'd make his shots on a weekly basis. He knew the towns, he knew the territory, he was happy. He's making good money both as the booker, the right. promoter, and as a wrestler. And he sort of fought off that. But then when when Jerry saw the handwriting on the wall that the territories, you know, their territory would go as well, he went to work for Vince. And that's what started the talent exchange. You know, uh, the fake Razor Ramon, uh, <laughs> yeah. Diesel coming down for us. <laughs> well, uh, a guy I, named uh, uh, Flex Cavana, Flex Cavana, which of course was Rocky, was Dwayne. Right. And uh, well, well, I mean, that's how that that's, came that's to be. Awesome. Because I saw an interview that you did with the Hardy Boys before they got. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Before they got really big. Memphis was a talent. was a great talent territory because you go back to Memphis wrestling, you go back to the days of, of, of Sputnik Monroe and and, uh, mm. and uh, Billy Wicks and <laughs> some of those guys in Memphis in the late fifties and sixties. Uh, Memphis, the great thing, and I programmed radio stations in Memphis in in, in 1976 and seventy seven. And Memphis, I always, and Chucky and I discuss this, I always think of Memphis as being the biggest city in Mississippi. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And, 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 and everybody I mean, knew everybody. Literally. Reels. Bufound yeah. hairdos are still popular. Yeah. There. Women love to chain smoke and drink beer. It was a great wrestling town. Yeah. And mm -hmm. uh, it, it, being that it's sort of on its own island, compared, you know, from Memphis to Knoxville is an eight and a half hour drive. That's right. So, I mean, yeah, it's Tennessee, but I haven't lived there in any Tennessee, it's Mississippi. Yeah, it really is. Yeah. Each time I ever go to Tunico, we would ease up and head into Memphis. Uh, Bill Street, right? Yeah, Bill yeah. Street. Yeah. Back before you could, before you were afraid to go on Bill <laughs> yeah. Street. Yeah, Bill Street. Yeah. Uh, a little rough Good place. Used to be. Yeah. So, where are we? All right, guys, so this is, uh, we're going to wrap up. This is episode one, and we're about to segue into episode two and do honorable mentions. So let's take a short commercial break. I was, I was born with big gums and born ready, and we're back from a commercial break. Um, Michael St. John, Chuck, and Kirk. Uh, Brian's here. Ron left us, but uh, it was good seeing him, wasn't it? Yes, yeah, I hadn't seen uh, Ron in a while. You know, Ron retired out of the Air Force. What was it, Chuck? Was he a full guard colonel or lieutenant colonel? Lieutenant colonel. He's over in Germany now. So. Retired yeah. out of uh, Hawaii. Yeah, retired out of Hawaii. Missouri. It's good seeing him. So, hey, we're going to do our honorable mentions now. And I uh, want to mention our sponsors. Uh, Lynn, we're eating the hell out of these cinnamon crackers. Smokehouse Crackers, our official sponsor. Busted Oak Bourbon Society, official sponsor. Unofficial sponsor. Doug and Wendy, thank you. Yeah, Doug and Wendy are great. Uh, Svedka Vodka, we're only giving you so much longer for you need to come off with a bottle of vodka or we're switching to Charles Parkland. So uh, here we go. We're going to start with Kirk this time and we're going to let him give, uh, it, we're going to talk about music now with storylines. So these are honorable mentions. Go yeah, for it. Yeah, these are uh, these are rocking and wrestling 
moments if you want to if you want to call that. We we want to thank Michael for that first hour. Some of those stories are incredible. It was it was wrestling history 101. It was yeah, fantastic. We, we could sit here an entire weekend and then some and, and probably never get tired of it. So, Michael, we appreciate it. God bless you. Thank you. I appreciate it. All appreciate right. Being here. So yeah. I told these Thanks. guys earlier, uh, you know, nowadays, you know, the, this generation and, you know, to go back probably 10 years, most people are just probably familiar with WWE. AEW is... is Come along in the last three years, about three years, Michael. Yes. Uh, it's on. It's on TBS. Matter of fact, it's on tonight. <clears throat> uh, Dynamite. And then you, you know, Ring of Honor, which Ring of Honor is, is now. I would say it, it's a part of AEW, but it's not. Uh, it should be. A, we'll talk a little bit about that later. But uh, what I wanted to do was, you know, we talked a lot about territories. Uh, in the previous segment <clears throat> and I wanted to bring out some music and some moments from the different territories not just WWE okay so there, there's, a, there's a lot of things you know if you're in our age group you know go go back to the some of the territories we mentioned uh, there, there was some great you know rock and roll entrance type songs that came out mm -hmm. and different moments so <clears throat> my first honorable mention is going to go uh, for a guy named New Jack, which was out of ECW. And I don't know if uh, who all watched ECW. I'll tell you a little story how I got in, to watch an ECW. I was out in Denver back in the mid-90s, and this guy came into work one day, and he said, man, I seen the damnedest thing on TV last night. Come on at 1030 called ECW or something like that. He said they were busting each other up with skillets and <laughs> barbed wire and all kind of crazy shit. So, you know, wasn't no internet back then. You couldn't, you know, I couldn't go top in ECW and, you know, see what it was about. I had to wait a week. So, um, I tuned in the next Wednesday night at 10.30 and they were in Philadelphia and uh, Paul Heyman which he was Paul E. Dangerously then, uh, was running ECW. And the first match that came out was a guy named Sandman. He came out, he was wild, man. Crushing beer cans on his head. <clears throat> and his opponent was Sabu, which, uh, you know, he was dressed up like a genie. And the match was a barbed wire match. I don't think I'd ever seen a barbed wire match. And then, mm. you know, the wrestling Philadelphia, all the, all the fans got skillets and golf clubs and you name it, you know, they're throwing it in there. So that's kind of how I got to, to watch an ECW. But uh, my first honorable mention is for New Jack. And we'll get into some of New Jack here in a minute. But he used to come out to a song called Natural Born Killers by Dr. Dre and Ice <clears throat> So if you know anything about New Jack, and I'm sure Michael does, this guy was, uh, he was a real danger to the business. And there's an episode that happened that uh, a lot of people may not be aware of. Uh, it's called the Mass Transit Incident, where New Jack actually, uh, he actually cut up a guy, uh, for real. So, you know, just go on YouTube and look it up. Uh, New Jack, Mass Transit Incident. Uh, there was a couple of other uh, 
things that happen. I won't get in details with that. I know, you know, kind of on time here, but <clears throat> ECW was uh, was was a crazy organization, and uh, you know, there was there was a lot of there was a lot of crazy stuff that came out of it. You just have to go on to eat, uh, YouTube and look, you know, eat, look up some ECW matches. Okay. Michael, what did you think about ECW? Uh, Kerry Lawler calls it extremely crappy wrestling. Uh, <laughs> uh, it was in the Bingo Hall in, in Philadelphia. It was a brainstorm of Paul E. Dangerously, who I worked with when he was 21 years old and he didn't have a car and was uh, having a bum ride to Jerry Jarrett's house to do interviews. One of the smartest men that's ever been in the business. Uh, really like him. Great guy. Really great great guy. Can talk. Oh, my God. Heyman. He could talk a hall. What we used to say in the wrestling business, he could call, he could talk you a crowd, which meant he could by just his promos, he could draw the business. He could draw people into the seats, put butts in the seats, just by what he said. You didn't have to watch the TV wrestling. You could just listen to Paul Heyman. He draws. And Cornette was like that too back in the day. But I worked with New Jack in Memphis when he was young. He and D'Lo Brown, or who ended up being D'Lo Brown, were working together as the gangsters. Yeah. And, uh, and what uh, uh, was. What? Uh, yeah, I remember D'Lo was with him as another guy named Mustafa Saeed. Yes, yes. He was a crazy well, <laughs> son of a gun, too. Mustafa was with, uh, came into Memphis uh, right after D'Lo got the New York thing, and, and he was sort of unique. He was more of the quiet one, and, and New Jack did the... Uh, and, and New Jack was just a fun guy. There was a guy that wrestled about that same time and came in with him in Memphis named uh, uh, Brown... Uh, Bearcat, not Bearcat Brown. Uh, was, it Brick, was it Brickhouse? Brickhouse Brown. And we lost Brickhouse due to COVID two years ago. I couldn't think of his name real quick. But Brickhouse, you know, he went to Auburn. And he was in Auburn for two years. And he, in fact, when he came to Memphis, wore an Auburn jacket to his first match in the ring on Channel 5. And, uh, and Brick and I used to... Brick, Brick, was a, Brick was a really cool guy that was really messed up on anything he could get his hands on. And he came to Arab one time, and we had a show back in 2003 that Dusty Rhodes produced over at the Armory there, and Brick was on the show, and he and I knew each other, and I knew he'd hit me up for money before the night was over, and I looked at him and I said, what do you need money for? Man, I need gas money. I said, now, you and I have known each other from Memphis, what do you need money for? He said, I need some fucking crack. And so, <laughs> I gave him a $20 bill. I was like, I'm going to be that honest. Oh my gosh, he did her. Well, 20 buy crack? I guess that's probably good. But, but New Jack, uh, the incident you're referring to was with that young man out of Boston that yeah. came down and he carved up like a Christmas turkey. For real? But, um, no. New Jack would get terribly high after he got really barred, if you would. He, he just got too crazy on the microphones. I mean, New Jack drew great money for Jimmy Cornette on Smoky Mountain Wrestling. Yeah, he, and got, uh, he had to send him out of there because he got, so it, much it got too hot in the kitchen. It really did because he came out there on TV and had an, or in TV on Channel Eight in, in Knoxville and described him and, and the gangsters as, you know what, with a word that we're not going to mention even yeah. on the internet, and that got him out of Knoxville in a hurry because all the Hillbillies up in 
East Tennessee. There's only two two families in East Tennessee, the Ogles and the Trotters. I don't yeah. know if you've ever been up there, but there's only two. There's, there's 150,000 people and two last names. Two last names. And, uh, and, and I ran radio stations in Knoxville for, for Randy Michaels, and, and so I, I, I sort of know that market. But, but anyway, it was a great wrestling market. But New Jack was a... He was a good talent because what he did was off the wall, but he was extremely, he was extremely good at what he did. Mm. And we lost him last year, uh, but uh, he had turned, sort of turned his life around. He had a wife and uh, had found Christianity and was starting to turn his life around. And found out from Jimmy Cornette how to market himself and was actually making money on his own when we lost him. Wow, a heart failure, but he's mm. good. He's, they they he's had a good show. Um, on the dark side of the ring about New Jack. It was all about New Jack. So um, if, if you want to see some of these instances we talk about, just go to YouTube, look it up. He had, a, he had another incident with a, a guy named Big Grimes where he did, they, they, had, they had a match prior and something went wrong and New Jack got his head and his skull fractured. And he was out for about a year. And then he, 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 he told everybody, he said, when I come back, he said, I'm killing Vic. And they had a scaffold match. And he actually took a taser up there and tasered him. And they're about <laughs> 30 feet up. And he said that his intentions was to kill him. Mm. And he threw him off that scaffold with the intention of hitting the concrete. Bombs away. Bombs away. Yeah. And he hit the ring apron and some of the tables. And I think it all happened was he dislocated his ankle. Mm. All right, I'll move on to my next one. Um, you know, we talked about ECW. Another one that I used to enjoy uh, watching back in the day was WCCW, which was World Class Championship Wrestling, which was out of Texas. And I think Michael has brought up a little bit about the Von Erics. But the song is Stranglehold by Ted Nugent. And it was the entrance music for Kevin and Kerry Von Eric when they were tag team okay. champs. So, uh, if anybody knows the story about the Von Erics, it's pretty sad. Um, you know, there was uh, the only one that's still alive is Kevin. Uh, the other Von Eric boys are dead. Uh, one of them died in an accident. Uh, David, he died of an intestinal issue over in Japan. And then the other three Von Erics, Les, Kevin, all committed suicide. Wow. Okay. But there's there's a show coming out. I think it's a production now. It's called Stranglehold or The Claw, excuse me, and it's going to be about the Von Erichs. So yeah, I'm he had the Claw. Yeah. Daddy Von Erich. Yeah. Yeah, Daddy was, Von Erich. Jack Atkinson is his real name. Yeah. And Jack was a, a very hot wrestler, very hot heel back when the the Germans were the heels back in the fifties and early sixties, with he and Waldo Von Erich, and uh, they were not brothers. Uh, but they they ran several of the territories, including Houston and Dallas. And when I say ran, they were on the cards uh, on top in several territories. They owned St. Louis for a while in tag team wrestling. And it was very sad. And Jerry Jarrett bought the Von Erichs uh, territory from Jack after uh, the death of Kerry. Wow. And then we went on ESPN. We had the, or Jerry had the ESPN contract, and he put me in there as the head announcer. Wow, and I'm I'm all over the you know, when ESPN had their uh, ESPN network that showed all the old yeah, ESPN right. classic. Those they show all those shows from going 52 weeks or however many weeks it was to Dallas doing those shows, 
and I'd hear from people I'd never heard from, and, you know, since college or high school, and they'd see it in Abu Dhabi, and they'd call me up, hey, I just saw you on ESPN, you know, <laughs> stuff Dhabi. like that, if I could get it. <laughs> Sandy get it in <laughs> yeah. yeah, and, uh, uh, but the Atkinsons, that's a very, very tragic family. There were other tragedies in Dallas, by the way, if you ever want to talk about that. Not only the Von Erichs, but uh, the tragedy of Chris Eric, or Chris Adams and his wife, yeah, and Gino Hernandez, and there were other. That was a, just a tragic, bearing territory. Speaking of the claw, didn't a spoiler develop the claw too, and put it on Dusty Rose, and that's why he's got that scar on his arm? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, Where did he come? I don't know. Georgia Championship the wrestling. The spoiler. He had a mask. Yeah. Big well, guy. He put the claw on Dusty Rose and gave him that arm scar. Out of, out of Detroit, <laughs> uh, Baron Von Rotschke yeah. was the man that was really, even before, uh, I guess, during the same period of the Atkinsons. Uh, and uh, Von Rotschke worked for, uh, worked for a good friend of mine. And, uh, I call him a friend. He's deceased, but he... I, I learned a lot from the man in the four or five weeks I spent riding the roads with him was the Sheik. The Sheik. And, uh, and, and, and we could sheik. do a whole story yeah. about, about, Just the sheik. about uh, the Sheik and God, what a, uh, he, here's a guy, you want to know somebody that lived and breathed wrestling, you know, and a lot of things people don't know about the Sheik, he had eight children, they were all adopted. Oh, okay. Oh, wow. Well, that's neat. Family man, big farm north of Detroit, raised eight children, all adopted, a couple of them with special needs. And he was Great the Great family sheep. man. And you know how he made money to, to, to keep those kids, those kids to college and keep them in. Well, it wasn't wrestling. It was wrestling. It was He wrestling. owned Detroit. Wow. Cobo Hall. All right. All right. So I'm going to go to my last honorable mention. Uh, this one is bad to the bone. Bullet Bob Armstrong. George Thorogood. Yes, George Thorogood. So, you know, the uh, southeastern days and continental days. And, you know, I'm some of my favorite memories about wrestling is that Chuck and I, I can remember back when we were in high school and, and I think maybe our first year of college when we were back home working, we'd sneak off the battle. You know, <laughs> we'd tell the folks, hey, hey, we're going to... Uh, you know, we're going to go to the Moody, or you know, we're, going to, we're going over to Mike Gentry's house. You know, yeah, we're going Monday night. Chuck had a little black truck. We loaded up. Well, we went to see ZZ Top in Birmingham. <laughs> yeah. I rode in the back of that thing with a cooler of beer. So, yeah. So, uh, you know, we sneak off the one and I think, you know, even down at the fairgrounds down there. But yeah. it was only like $5 to get in ringside. It was cheap as shit. And Chuck's little sister went with us, Wendy, one night. Eight God bless her. Eighth grader. Yeah, I think we even lied we about that. We all torturing that girl for her. She wanted to go. <laughs> so we went down to Bout One and actually lost her. And Of course she uh, did. Yeah. Chuck found her. You're lucky there. your daddy didn't find out about it. Yeah, Chuck, Chuck's dad would have been more pissed than my dad. My dad would uh, oh, have yeah. been pissed. Buddy would have been pissed, but then he'd have cracked his sterling big mouth open. But Chuck's dad, that would have been ass-whooping. Yeah, they would have hit all the men to the ground. But <clears throat> Wendy was a big fan of Tommy Rogers. Okay. So we look up, and here comes Tommy Rogers. Here's a pop, and here he comes walking in. And look down there, and I'm like, there she is down there. She's patting him on the back, walking in the ring. <laughs> I mean, my little eighth sister. That's I'm like, good. whoa, look at Tommy Rogers going. He wasn't a big guy, but he was a hell of a wrestler. But we, we lost Tommy a few years ago, yeah. uh, unfortunately. But Michael had already brought up, you know, the, the Fullers. But some other notable names, 
you know, all the Armstrongs wrestled out of there at some time or the other, but here, here's a story to go along with this about Bullet Bob. Thomas Hutchison, our fraternity brother, yep, Hutch from Marietta, Georgia, he went to school with them Armstrong boys. I remember this. And um, I think he might have even lived in the same neighborhood. With, and, yeah, and, with Bob and his son Brad. Yeah, so, um, you know, names I can remember down there, the Armstrongs, the Flame, mm-hmm. you know, he'd come out and he'd throw a flame on you. Uh, Mongolian Stomper. Remember him. Jimmy Golden. And uh, Tommy Rich, rest man, he was all over the place. But that was some good times back in the day. Good you know, stuff. Sneaking off and, and and going to watch a wrestling match. Jimmy Golden was raised in Montgomery and was first cousin. His his daddy was his his dad's. I guess it was his grandmother was a fuller. So they were kin. There was there was a kinship there. And of course, the Stomper, you know, wrestled in our territory as well. And he was, was Canadian, he scared me. That, you know, he had <laughs> he a boy. had that look. You know, he he had the. There's certain wrestlers that came uh, down the pipe back in those days that just had a look. Who was the big wrestler? He had a handlebar mustache. He was enormous, bald. Bru- Bru- not Bruce or Brody. No, and he played in the movie Escape from New York with Kurt Russell. Oh, I'll I'll tell you in a minute. You know who I'm talking about. This guy. <laughs> once you go to the end, you'll figure it Yeah, once I, yeah. It hit me at 2 a.m. Yeah. One Bundy. No, Bundy. no, no. This guy was. Ball, you know. big ball guy. Mm, I'll look it up while y'all are talking. Chuck, right. what are your honorable mentions? <clears throat> I got to start off with somebody we've been talking about a good bit. And he, he's had a lot of songs that he's used, but uh, Jeff Jarrett, back in his TNA days, when he used My World by uh, Dale Driver. Um, I've always liked Jeff Jarrett because <clears throat> about the same age group, he was a heck of a football player up in uh, Tennessee. And uh, he's uh, honorable mention. The song is a lot different from what you would see him come out to. It was more of a heavy rock song that uh, he, he really played to. He, he had the shorter hair then, too, and he didn't blow it out. And he, I, I'm not sure if he carried the guitar, but yep. I know he had the What can be hair. more rock and roll than... Hitting somebody in the head with a guitar. I mean, that, I mean that's classic, and and he's he's got a story about how he started hitting people with a guitar. Yeah, that's not his gimmick. That was Billy Travis's gimmick, and he stole Billy Travis's gimmick when Billy went to Dallas, and then Jeff started using it. And when he went to New York, he just that he picked that up as his gimmick. But Billy Travis was the first guy that did the guitar shots. Yeah, you know, Ox Baker. Ox Baker. <laughs> You know, uh, Jeff Jarrett has slipped into AEW now, and um, on his premiere two Wednesdays ago, he actually used the old guitar on Darby Allen and busted wow. him upside the head. So, uh, Darby probably deserved it. But probably so. What else you got there, Chucky? My second one going to be the one man gang, and Michael and I have talked about this. And, and one man gang. One man gang about the toughest people outside the ring. And he, he'd always bring up the one man gang, of course, uh, New Jack and some other guys. But uh, it never did really list his song. It was just a badass song that he'd come walking out to, and he just, big old dude, walk out there. Uh, and, you know, you knew that, that that guy was about to handle business. But uh, anyway, my third one is. Uh, I was talking to a buddy of mine the other night, a guy named Rob Ross, and we were state troopers together. Oh, Lord. And he said... Uh, Love so, Rob. Yeah, Rob's a great guy. He said, uh, so what are y'all doing this podcast for? And I told him, I said, we're doing the top, you know, entrance songs for wrestlers back in the 80s and whatever. And he said, 
well, class 83 can't forget about the same mountain arena and Scott Quinn be coming out. Too. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Scotty the body. Scotty the body, yeah. So Scotty the body, and he said, I think he came out to Rick Springsfield's uh, Jesse's Girl. I don't know if that's true or not. But I think shout out to the Quigs. Shout that's out great. to Scott Quigg. Now, Scott oh, my God. Class of 83. It's <laughs> He asked me, he called me before we come in here, and he said, you can give any props to Scott Quigley yet? I said, I'm going to. He said, you know This is what you were telling me about yes. earlier. Yes. <laughs> oh, my God. Was he masked or unmasked? Uh, he's unmasked. He's unmasked. Got him and, the body. Uh, he's a big boy, boy, strong, too. No, <laughs> had four arms like Steve Garvey. Oh, uh, yeah. He, 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 so did your dad. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, Mickey Henry worked a lot with him. Yeah. And, uh, he did a good job. But Scott... Um, he, he denies it ever happening. But he will not admit to it. Rick Springfield, Jesse's girl. Oh my goodness gracious. That's what good. A guy. He got this big old lumbering dude come out to that song. I didn't know that. No, that's I ridiculous. That. I still, I still got a beef with Quigley because yeah. he got me and you killed in Panama City. Me too. Yeah. And Chuck. And we were all there on a catamaran. He wanted to flip it over. We're in so the middle he, of the sea. What you tell we, we him? No... Tell, tell the exact story. What yeah, you tell him? I, you know, I'm much taller than Quigley, but he had the beef on me. I said, I'm whooping your ass when we get back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But you kept us from capsizing. Yeah. Yeah. That was sharp. Funny yeah. time. Funny yeah. time. Yeah. All right. That's my three. That's your three? Well, you got one of mine in Jeff Jarrett. Yeah. yeah. He was one of mine. I always thought Ric Flair had a great entrance with uh, 2001 Space Odyssey. Uh, you know, world champion. Yes, great, great. great thing. Randy Savage, you're going to have to help me with this song, but Randy Savage had a good good entrance. Macho Man? Macho Man. Yeah, Pomp and Circumstance. Yeah. 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 And by the way, yeah, it's on my list. I'll mark it off. Which Pomp, was, Pomp and Circumstance. Which was his dad's entrance music. His dad was yeah. one of the first to ever use entrance music, uh, uh, the professor, Angelo mm -hmm. Puffo. Mm -hmm. And when, back then... When you used entrance music, you didn't have to worry about those. Well, I could start cussing here, but BMI ass cap and ass. Uh, <laughs> I don't want to talk about. Right. Hey, Randy would be seventy yesterday. His birthday yeah. was yesterday. Yeah, exactly. he yeah, but 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 he used the uh, the pomp and circumstance. Yes. Yeah. Right. That's, yeah. That's what I was looking for. But always Randy a great, great music. All right. First, first of all, what's your honorable mentions? My first honorable mention. Ghost of Stone Cold Steve Austin. When you heard that glass smash before his theme song started, you knew the shit was about to go down. <laughs> I mean, I'm sorry. It's true. You just knew that it was about to go down. Whether it was him taking the beer truck and hosing down Vince McMahon, yeah. you knew something was fixing to go down. <laughs> well, what's the song? That's his. That was his theme song. Oh. When when the glass smashed, and then there was a big guitar song. And that was his theme song. Okay. My second one. It was when I consider really rock came back in to the wrestling world, and it was when Triple H had the game Motorhead. by Motorhead. Let me. And it not only was it a theme song, it was a great song. Yeah, it was. Yeah. I made my list, but I got a backstory of how that song came about. And I'll, I'll talk about that when we come back around. All right. And my last one was a group that I had 
really forgotten about. But they got their name from this song, and it's the Fabulous Freebirds. Oh, yeah. Fabs? Yeah, Freebird. They got their name from the song Freebird. I I felt like that was going to make this list somewhere. And that's my honorable mentions. All right, those are good. This is going to be a great playlist, everybody. So available on Apple, Amazon, um, iHeartRadio. Who am I missing? Anchor. Spotify. Spotify. All the platforms. And we'll have the playlist on Apple for sure. And it'll be a good one. Just hit shuffle. You'll have a good time. So my honorable mentions, my first one is No More Mr. Nice Guy by Alice Cooper. Yes. Just because he accompanied Jake the Snake into the ring and he was draped in freaking pythons. So Yeah, I read a thing and, and Alice Cooper said he was scared shit. I bet he was. <laughs> I bet he was. You know, he's not that big a guy and he said he got around those guys. And he was a he was he a was shrimp. He was gonna get beat up. Yeah. Good golfer though. Yeah, he is a good, yeah, golfer, a good golfer. So golfer. anyway, the most, the most played interview the Michael St. John on YouTube is the infamous Jake the Snake interview in uh, at the Bay St. Louis Casino at, uh, uh, at a show at a pay-per-view called The Legends of Wrestling back in 2000 when Jake the Snake, and I'm backstage in a tuxedo, and Jake the Snake has been messed up since 10 o'clock in the morning, <laughs> and I am holding Jake up from falling fat off. I How did you hold him up? Oh, well, I don't know, but I know it's the most beautiful. All the, including the Hulk Hogan uh, interview that I did the VO for, and it's the most played and the most watched, and people still, the reason they know Michael St. John in wrestling, I think is behind the fact that I kept the interview together and held Jake the Snake up for, six for four months. Oh, no one can top that story. That's yeah. good. Another story. What is he, six, six, That's six, good, five? Yeah, About six, six. He's yeah. a big guy. Yeah, he's All right. Weighed right. 275 at the time, plus the bag with the snake. <laughs> you mentioned pop and, Pomp and Circumstance. That was on my list, Macho Man. So my... The last honorable mention is Ain't No Grave by Johnny Cash. Yeah. And The Undertaker used that. It wasn't his first intro song. He had something else, but it evolved into Ain't No Grave. It's not a rock song, but it's Johnny Cash. It can it's make a, it's any a, it's job. It's a music. Yeah. It's a music moment. So, whether it's rock. There's, there's honorable mentions. Um, again, thanks to our sponsors and all you guys being here. Now, we're about to go round robin. I think we got time to do this. Number five, Kurt. All right, so I got a I got a tie at number five. Uh, I'm going with Judas for Chris Jericho. He's in AEW now, uh, and Judas is by Fozzie, which is Chris Jericho's group, and he's the lead singer for Fozzie. So if you ever get a chance, Fozzie's pretty damn good. Yeah, uh, that song is really cool, and um, you know, like I said Jericho's on AEW now. Wednesday nights at seven o'clock. But what his old song was "Break Down the Walls." Yeah, yeah. this one's much better. Anyway. Yeah, it is. Yeah. yeah, it is. So, um, like I said, I got a, a, a tie, and I'm going with Hogan with Voodoo Child. Oh yeah, yeah. boom! That stole Michael. Yeah, that's <laughs> when he was bad Hogan too. Right, and, and what happened was, uh, you know, he needed, he'd been a good Hogan. You know, he was in WCW. Yeah. Now. And they had a, a, a thing, Bass at the Beach, July of 96. And Macho Man, uh, Sting, and Lex Luger were doing a handicap match against uh, Nash and Hall. 
Kevin Nash and Scott Hall. Scott Hall just died here a little, two months, two months couple, three or four months ago. But anyway, long story short, Luger got out. He he got out of the ring. You know they, you know he he was out of the match. Uh, something happened. So Hogan came out to his you know real American song, and everybody was you know going nuts. And he got in there and he turned on. Watch the man stand on a hill. And he's with the NWO. Wow. Good Voodoo Child, Jimi Hendrix for Hogan. Good one. Chuck, what's your number five? Well, we've already mentioned it, but Hunter Hearst Townsley, the game, Motorhead. Okay. That's one of my favorite. I think when Motorhead did that, they just had the rock. Oh, yeah. Great sound, but that was number five for me. Good deal. Michael? I'm going to pass on the top five because I've got my top five wrestlers, so you guys talk about the music, and at the end, I'll give my five, top five wrestlers a lot. Outstanding. Okay. Michael, what you got? My number five is the Rock and Roll Express. Ricky Morton and Robert Gibson. When they came out to ELO, Rock and Roll is King. <laughs> <laughs> you know, those two are still wrestling. They are Man. still wrestling. That was my favorite tag team as a child. Ricky's son just became uh, the uh, uh, NWA World Junior Heavyweight Championship uh, was in New Orleans over the weekend, and Ricky's son is the new NWA World Junior Heavyweight Champion, and his son is a better wrestler than Ricky is. Wow. That's cool. Very cool. All right, we're off to a good start here. My number five, did y'all know that, you know, Kiss was a big deal? Yes. And there was a wrestler that even painted his face like Gene Simmons. And I wish I knew the name of that wrestler. I didn't write it down. But irregardless, I'm going to put Kiss Rock and Roll All Night on Was that Ultimate Warrior? I think so. He yes. painted his face up. Yeah, he like painted his face up. Yeah, that's but where he got Kiss, the Kiss had it. Yeah, he, they, they came out uh, painted up as Gene Simmons. So I'm going Kiss Rock and Roll All well, Night. Well, you also made there was a tag team. In the WWE at their WWF mm-hmm. at that time, and uh, God, I, I got them coming the, up. Uh, it was the new demolition. Or it was demolition. It was the second yeah. generation of demolition. Yeah. They actually worked the A-Rab show I was talking to you about with mm-hmm. Dusty Rhodes earlier. Good stuff. All right, what number four, Kirk? What's your number four? Okay, uh, I'm going with American Badass by Kid Rock mm. for the Undertaker. Yeah. So man, the Undertaker had some good scores, didn't he? So, you know, Undertaker was the dead man up yeah. until I think it was sometime in '99, and he got hurt, and he was out for about uh, eight months. So during that downtime that he had, he wanted to change his gimmick. You know, he he wanted to do away with the Undertaker. Taker was from Nashville. I knew him when he was in high school. He started with Jerry Jarrett and uh, the Nashville Memphis territory. When we were doing the shows, and he used to come to the the women's building, and then the fairgrounds arena in Nashville, and uh, know him real well. Great guy, a great family guy, but uh, he started as a master of pain with us, and then the Taker gimmick, Paul, he and really uh, Paul Bearer, who worked at Continental, <laughs> Paul um, Bearer from Memphis yeah. or from uh, Mobile, uh, <laughs> his family, his family owned a mortuary. And that's how they came up with the gimmick. And then that, and once he got the WWE, uh, of all the WWE superstars, I think the one that will last the longest that people will remember will be Taker. Wow. But uh, 
you know, like I said, he was out eight months, and he, he wanted to come up with a, you know, the new gimmick, and he come up with American Badass, but no one knew that that was going to transpire, so it was Judgment Day pay-per-view 2000 that he come off, you know, to American Badass by Kid Rock with a motorcycle and a headband, and he did that from 2000 to 2004. Uh, he wasn't the Undertaker. He was American Badass, and he didn't want to go back to being Taker, but Vince made him go back. Interesting. Good story. All right, Chuck, what's your number four? My number four, about a year ago, this guy uh, re-entered AEW. And uh, when he first came out, they said it was the loudest pop in the history of wrestling. And uh, it's going to be CM Punk with Cult Personality. I love it. Living Color. It's a great song. Made my list initially, but I put that song on another list earlier. And, but I'm glad it was mentioned. I yes. thought you were going to talk about when Kurt uh, became Kamala and he did that big belly <laughs> flop yeah, in the that, pool. No, that I was did. a pop. I've never that seen a, a yeah. belly flop like that in my life. Anyway. Well, CM Punk, uh, you know, when he went to MMA, he found out pretty quick that he, he wasn't made for all that. But no. when he came back to AEW, he uh, seems like he's got run off there now, so... Mm-hmm. Yeah, he came out. They, he, he's from Chicago, and you know when he made his debut with AEW, he did it in Chicago, and I saw it when he when he came wild. out, and it was it was pretty damn awesome. But Punk, you know, you either like him or you don't, and I don't agree with what he just did. I won't get into details. You can look that up on YouTube. But I think AEW is going to let him go. Yeah, yeah, he he. Messed up. He's a couple of things on, on him. He is one of the best talents of this generation. And he is a cancer in the locker room. All yeah. the boys. Oh, I'm sure. All right, Purse, you what go. you got? Well, my number four, the Thunder's been stolen as usual. <laughs> <laughs> and it was Hulk Hogan when he turned bad at Bash at the Beach. And I'll never forget when Hulk Hogan was straight laced, say your prayers, take your vitamins. And people were throwing beers and popcorn and whatever they could at him when he turned bad. And if I'm not mistaken, there was some kind of, when he started using Voodoo Child, there was some kind of copyright deal that eventually got invoked yeah. in that deal with Jimi Hendrix. Yeah, they, it, yeah. If, if you listen to it, you never hear the words. It's just like the instrumental the part. The instrumental part, yeah. Voodoo Child. Okay. That's my number four. All right. Well, I got an interesting one. Y'all remember the uh, Briscoe Brothers? Yes. I love the Briscoes. Yes. So there's <laughs> this great YouTube video that's put the music for, for like their comeback, and it's Give Me Back My Bullets by yeah. Leonard Skinner. And right. days. They were real. They were like college wrestlers at University of Michigan. Somewhere, no, like was, somewhere Iowa, or Iowa, Iowa. Yeah, okay. Anyway, I saw it and I was like, it's one of my favorite songs. It's and like, no kin to Jerry, Jack, or any of the uh, Briscoe family, which is right. a famous Oklahoma wrestling family. FYI, and you brought up uh, Ricky and Robert, there's a match this coming, when's the 21st, Sunday? Uh, there's a match this coming weekend where, and they're in Charlotte. And it's a, it's a match between the Briscoes and the Rock and Roll Express. Wow. Holy cow. That's crazy. That's got Percy, Percy's about to cry. <laughs> you need to get it, Percy. All right. We're, uh, how we doing? We're doing good. Actually, he was talking about what was going down in Charlotte. Ricky Steamboat is wrestling that. 
the dragon. He's the in dragon. that same. He's on that same card. The yeah. dragon. He's the main event. All right. We're at the nitty gritty. Top three. Kirk, what you got for three? Uh, it's already been mentioned. You know, it's the game by Triple H. But I think the moment. Uh, let me tell you a little thing about that song, the game. Motorhead didn't write it. Jim Johnston, who is, is a composer for WWE, he's done a lot of the, he done that Stone Cold thing. He did the Rocks thing, the Shawn Michaels thing. He, he does a lot of the music there. He wrote the song. He said he wrote it in five minutes and three chords. The Triple H wanted Motorhead to perform it. Gave to Motorhead and the rest. And they did. That's a great story. All right, Chuck. Well, this one here um, started off at oh, what a rush, Legion of Doom, Road Warriors, Animal and Hawk. Oh, I loved Animal and Hawk. And, Those and, guys, uh, I thought were. Believe it was, if I'm not mistaken. Bad mothers. They were. They they they, they set the bar high for the tag teams. Uh, is it Jimmy Hart that composed that one, uh, What a Rush. I, I, don't know. I, I was thinking I would, I'd read he'd done that one, but you know Jimmy Hart was a composer before he was anything. Yeah, in the early sixties he was actually mm-hmm. a member of a group called the Gentries. No was, relation. No relation. And he actually had the number one song that's over me and keep on dancing. I'm not related to Bobby Gentry either. <laughs> he was uh, he was sixteen years old when he sang League on there. Yeah. Yeah. Good yeah. stuff. A million song songs. All right. Jimmy Hart had sixty two. So that's your three. Yep. Percival, what you got for three? My number three is not so much a song, although they did have a, have a theme song, but as a child, last, I could, That was last week. Well, <laughs> it, it's probably every day, yeah. but I considered these guys the Beatles of wrestling. <laughs> and you only had tag teams, as far as I can remember, to these guys. But you had the four horsemen. Mm-hmm. When you had Ric Flair, Arn and Ole, and Tully Blanchard. Whatever happened to Gene? And you had the he passed away. Yeah. Um, he four horsemen. He looked seventy years old when he was thirty-five. Uh, they were from Minnesota, and yeah. uh, Gene ended up going back to Minnesota and passed and okay. a while back. You screwed with one of them. You screwed with all of them. That was the four horsemen. Sort of like the guys in this damn podcast. <laughs> <laughs> you got All right, it. that's a good one. All right, uh, number three for me, it's Iron Man by Black Sabbath, yes. which was used by the Barbarians as their intro song. I mean, that's that's an intimidating start. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that comes on, so that was my number three. Kirk, what you got for number two? All right, we've been talking about entrance music. And I know it's rocking, rocking and wrestling and moments as well. But actually, it should be my number one, but it's not. I'm going with WrestleMania one, and I'll tell you why. I think that's where entertainment, the music, the movie industry kind of crossed paths, started crossing paths with wrestling and turned it into what it is today, entertainment. Okay. But there was a lot of stuff that went on in Mania and. You know what the theme song for WrestleMania was? No. Easy Lover by, by Phil, Phil Collins, Bailey. Phil Collins and Philip Bailey, yeah. but no words. It was the instrumental. Oh, that's good. Good one. All, All right. right. My number two, we've already mentioned it, was uh, Bad Street Atlanta GA by the Freebirds. Good. Because 
those dudes lived at the end of the street, and the further you went down the street, the better it got. All right, <laughs> they I lived love at it. the end of the street. So the free Michael it. PSAs, Dan Street, Atlanta, GA. FYI, the way music got integrated into integrated into the wrestling business with Vince was a guy named Cal Rudman, who was a record promoter out of mm -hmm. Philadelphia and a mentor of mine. And uh, Cal started, and he was the one that introduced Cindy Lauper to Vince McMahon. And uh, he was the one that said, hey, wrestling, rock and roll, they're the same genre, they're the same thing. Pretty much, and that's how Captain Lou Albano wound up in a uh, Cindy Lauper video. Exactly, and Cal Rudman, we lost Cal last year, just gave, before he died, gave $100 million to Temple University to start oh, wow. the Cal Rudman Broadcast Center. Mm. And uh, he was a wonderful man and a very dear friend of mine. And I was, unfortunately, uh, when he passed, I was recovering from my COVID incident and did not get to go to his, to his funeral. But uh, that's the reason wrestling and music, if you would, were John. tail together yeah. as Cal Rudman. Oh, can, I, can, can I add something to that? Mm -hmm. So that's a great point. So before WrestleMania one, Vince went to MTV, and this was brilliant, I think. He got MTV to broadcast two big events from Madison Square Garden. One of them was the brawl to end it all, and that was in 84. And then right before WrestleMania in February 85, uh, MTV aired war to settle the score from Madison Square Garden. So what that tells me is they reached out to that MTV audience. Yeah, they did. Because it was pulled them in mm -hmm. what was about to happen in WrestleMania. Makes sense. So. Okay. Good story. First two? Where are we at? Two? Two. Two. My number two is my first really recollection of rock and roll music. And it's Hulk Hogan and Rick Derringer. I'm a real American. Mm. Mm. Rick Derringer. I thought all he did was rock and roll hoochie coo. <laughs> Good song. He did another one, apparently. All right. Wasn't he with Edgar Winter? Uh, he may have been early on. I think he did. I think oh, that's Edgar where he Winter. got his start. And then he spun off and had his solo career. Yeah, good one. All right, my number two is by my favorite band, ZZ Top. Do you know ZZ Top? They were huge wrestling fans. Yes. They showed up ringside at a lot of events. They were even on Monday Night Raw once. So I'm just going to throw it out there. I'm bad. I'm nationwide by ZZ Top. Great song. You got the beard. Well, I'm, I, they inspired me. <laughs> yeah, and I needed to cover up my ugly face. I have face for radio. So, all right, well, so we're uh, at number one. Uno. So, we're going to get this in. We're going to take a commercial break, and then we're going to have Michael St. John's top five wrestlers. It's going to be great. So, Kirk, what's your number one? Uh, well, it's already been mentioned about Ric Flair, and everybody thinks that, you know, everybody thinks the 2001 A Space Odyssey. Well, that's not the song, the, it, the c composition is called Dawn. Mm. And it's by a guy named Richard Strauss. He composed that. So, to me, I don't think of 2001 A Space Odyssey. When I hear that song, I, I think of Ric Flair. 
because you hear that song, you can see him coming down the ramp. You don't yeah. know what the hell's about that. Yeah, you know, Elvis, <laughs> they used to play that for Elvis's intro when he was at the International in Las Vegas, too. So that's that's my number one. Good stuff. Chuck, what's your number one? Guess what? It's going to be the same. All right. Slick Rick and, uh, you know, some of the things he did, and it's like purposely, he'd come down there and have that bow or whatever. Yeah. But uh, some of those quotes... Uh, you know, whenever I, I, I told Kirk that I, I was thinking about Space Odyssey, I said, you know, I'm going to finish off by talking about, you know, you, the old talk, you're talking to the Rolex wearing, diamond ring wearing, kiss stealing, woo! Yeah. Wheeling, wheeling, dealing. Wheeling, dealing. Yeah. Limousine riding, jet flying, son of a gun. Y'all look at it wearing my wrestling his, trunks tonight. <laughs> <laughs> hard time holding his own clouds down. Yeah, I love it. So that's number one. So Kirk right. and I hit right on with that. Good one. stuff. This yeah. is going to be a great playlist. Rick, you got to put Rick Flair number one. Yeah, he's absolutely. the greatest. All right, Percy, what's your number one? That's num my number one is Rick Flair. That he, you know, he and he stole that from Buddy Rogers, the whole strut and everything that he did, and uh, the song where he got the kiss stealing, wheeling dealing. Was from a song that Dave Dudley recorded called "Truck Driving Son of a Gun." Oh, good history. Oh, I didn't know that. If you listen to that, he says, he, say, Woo, he says, "I'm a kiss stealing, wheeling dealing, truck driving son of a gun," and Woo. that was a 1965 song by Dave Dudley. Wow, that's, that's, that's so weird. He is on it. <laughs> oh, I love that. I love that. Wrabfm. And I got you got to love the Nature Boy. Well, he would like when somebody would be talking, he would say. Shut up, punk. And he would say, see these alligator shoes? They cost more than your house. <laughs> yeah, it's Jack. Yeah. yeah. Hush, it, woman. My favorite line from the Nature Boy is, it may be the oldest riding, oldest ride in a park, but it's, it's still got about the longest line. <laughs> Talk about Space Mountain. Woo. Take a ride on Space Mountain one more time. <laughs> To be the man, you gotta beat the man, and I'm a 60. How many man. times have you heard that in college football, high school, oh, I mean, and, 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 football, and, and in baseball? To yeah, be the man, absolutely. To be the champion, you gotta beat the champion. Yep. For you, Michael, Rick Derringer did play with Edgar Wayne in 1971, 1972. There we go. Wow. Wow. We get confirmations up in hey, this place. I'm telling you, Vanderbilt graduate. Yeah. There's your number one there. My number oh, one, geez. we've talked about Lawler. And Andy Kaufman, it's Man in the Moon by R.E.M. It's, you know, it's all about Andy Kaufman. Yeah. And uh, I remember I saw that episode, or I saw it live on the David Letterman show when that happened. And uh, it's a great movie. It's a great story. Lawler's in the movie. Um, just makes for good Hollywood, good everything. It was awesome. I was, working, uh, I was working in Memphis and doing the shows when Lance had his heart attack and going up there when Jerry was contacted about that movie. And he and and Jim Ross got Lance's part, which Lance was should have played it, but uh, Jerry Lawler got that part because when the producer was looking at the original uh, footage and was looking at Lawler as he looked then, he still looked like he looked Lawler. The same thing. Yeah. So that's why he got the part. Yeah. He still. I mean, you could. It's 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 a fact. So hey, we're going to take a commercial break, and we're going to come back with Michael St. John's top. Five wrestlers. Yes. All right, we're back from commercial break. Hope you enjoyed that commercial, which there really wasn't one, but we had some off-air discussion here it's that was discussion. really hilarious. It's and glad discussion. it's off-air. Yeah. But all right, so 
it's this is time this is the time for Michael St. John's top five wrestlers. I can't wait. Well I start right. out with little darling Dagmar. No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> No, actually, uh, if you come up to Busted Oak to see Mike we'll tell you bartending the story. and come in the cigar room, we'll tell you the story about Harley Race. That's fair enough. About, about Harley, Harley Race. About Harley Race. Well, and, and, and I don't want to give away my number one, but the, the top five wrestlers that I've ever worked with in, in doing what I did for the professional wrestling world, at number five is, is Ric Flair. And I'm not degrading Ric Flair at number five, but Ric was great. Uh, he, he was a, the ultimate world champion when he had the belt. Had some demons, had some problems, but was that uh, would definitely be in anybody's top five, and perhaps even at number one. Number four is is Luthez, and that predates I think a bunch of people here. But Luthez was a shoot wrestler. He was Hungarian. He was the first world champion uh, for uh, for Sam Munchnik after he formed the NWA. Uh, Lou, uh, I, I got to work with Lou in the twilight of his career, and I watched him stretch a guy. You know, a good new guy would get into wrestling and would come out, and, you know, and it would would be green as a green grass, and and the boys wanted to sort of indoctrinate him, and the way they used to indoctrinate him, and it was almost a rib, was to get one of the veterans to stretch him. And if you've ever been stretched, and I have been stretched, uh, it ain't comfortable. <laughs> And they everything, every muscle in your body from your shoulder to your to your feet is felt when they put you in that hold. And the, the guy that stretched me was Tojo Yamamoto, and he didn't put oh, any pressure. Oh wow! <laughs> Tojo Yamamoto stretched you? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Also, Tojo was a a great cook, and b uh, uh, anytime with boys would we fly or be on the bus and get into Dallas or back to Memphis, you get on the, the training table. And you put a towel around your neck and cross it and make you cross your hands like this and say, relax, relax, and then pull the crap out of that towel. And you could just feel every bone in your spine just, just crack. Just crack and just feel. You get up and you felt like a million dollars for at least the next day. I think it's funny you said that he was a really good cook. Yeah, he was a great, great cook. Came over to the house and uh, did, uh, did uh, Chinese uh, fried rice that I've never had as good or never will. But Luthes was a, a great champion, and, and I think a lot of the, the older wrestlers, of course, hold him in, in high high abandons. And I think his history will pan out. I think a lot of the younger generation will get around to seeing what Luthes was, how he represented himself, how he represented the world of professional wrestling, which, by the way, I still consider a sport. You can say what it is, but it is an act academic or it's a, an athletic activity. Absolutely. That I still think is a sport, and, and I just I, I won't give that up. Uh, number three on my list is the King, Jerry Lawler. Uh, Jerry, I knew Jerry in the young start. He stood, his first professional wrestling match was in Birmingham, Alabama. His first match on TV was okay. in 42. Love that. Sterling Brewer with his partner Jim White. And then Sam Bass came along as his manager, and we lost Sam in a horrific car, a car wreck in Dixon, Tennessee. Sam and the Mighty Yankees were riding together, doing 100 miles an hour in a big Lincoln Continental, and went off the road. Wow. And were all killed. Uh, when I would ride, when Tojo would ride with us, or when I'd drive to Memphis and Tojo would ride, Jerry Jarrett would be in the car, Jeff Jarrett, Eddie Marlin. Uh, Eddie had a big Lincoln, Jeff had a big Lincoln, Jerry had a big Lincoln. We'd, we'd go, we'd stop at the exit before the Tennessee River Bridge uh, down in, uh, I take that back, it was the Dixon exit, the last Dixon exit right. we'd stop. Same place every week, and Tojo would buy one can of beer. 
and as we approached the ridge, there was a, a, a small creek bridge, and then you start your approach to the Tennessee River Bridge. Tojo would pop the top of that beer and throw it out the window. And after about the second time, third time, I'd seen this on a Saturday going down to Memphis Wrestling, I looked at him and I said, what are you doing? He looked at me and said, I'm tossing Sam a beer. Oh. And he would do it on every trip. So Great I, story. Uh, so I, I'm, uh, Tojo was one, one of the most horrible days in my life. I was programming in St. Louis at Hot 97 and my wife called and told me that Tojo had shot himself. And I, it's just, I think of Tojo. Tojo's one of those people that you come across in life that, that make an impact that you never forget. Yep. Never forget. Number two on the list is the man that teamed with Tojo for for 55 straight weeks in Huntsville, Alabama, at the Patton Street Armory in Huntsville, Alabama, two top girls, and Jackie Fargo, would be yes. on And the fabulous Jackie Fargo, we lost him two years ago. Uh, Fargo was the ultimate, he trained Jerry Lawler. He, was, he had an eye for talent. He was a, a consummate wrestler. He and his brother, Sonny Fargo, were the first tag team in the history of professional wrestling to sell out Madison Square Garden in 1958. And uh, wow. Sonny Fargo, later in life, you guys will remember Roughhouse Fargo. Mm -hmm. Jackie's crazy brother that he'd go and get out of the asylum and bring him because <laughs> bring him Jerry Lawler yeah. called him and bring Roughhouse. Well, that was, uh, Sonny Fargo was a, tender, tended out, ended up being a referee for uh, Crockett for many years. Mm -hmm. But Jackie Fargo is number two on my list because of, the, of what he contributed and what he was to professional wrestling. And number one on my list is, is Harley Race. Uh, wow. Harley is, is, to me, the most consummate professional in any sport I've ever run across. Uh, he was a he was made for the wrestling ring. He made wrestling what it is today, what you see out of the heavyweight champions, whether it's in New York with Roman Reigns or if it's in, in AEW or whoever. I mean, the, the mold, even Ric Flair followed the mold that was set and cut by Harley Race. And there won't be another one in our generation. But no, there'll, there'll never be another Harley Race. And we mentioned this early, earlier. One of the things that uh, about Harley Race is not only did he play the part, because he was the part. Amen. Yeah. I mean, he was the real deal. And outside of the ring, everywhere, just he just looked like he could break your neck. <laughs> yeah. Well, the thing, too, about Harley is whether you were talking to him in the dressing room or at lunch, or at, or on camera doing a promo, what you heard was what you got. Yeah. And uh, and Harley was a, and then the other thing, and I think the thing that is hidden about Harley Race that nobody ever talks about is his love for children, especially children with disabilities. Mm. And if he would be in a town, whether it was Nashville or Memphis or, or Birmingham or wherever, and he's wrestling that afternoon and he's got time, you're going to see him at Children's Hospital. Wow. That's fantastic, and, and you're going to see him just with the gold, with the with the ten pounds of gold, mm -hmm. and in Harley dressed, and he would always dress immaculate. I mean, mm -hmm. great suits, great look, and he'd walk into that hospital, and uh, sometimes unannounced, and he'd say, "Have you got any kids that are sick? I'd like to take a picture with them." And people knew who he was, so it sure. Was, I mean, he's hard to miss. <clears throat> he was hard to miss. But people don't people don't realize all the great things that he did outside the ring. It's fantastic. Let's talk a little bit more about uh, number five on your list because whenever you and I went to the uh, Florida State uh, LSU game down in uh, New Orleans, you relayed a story to me about that match and the fact that how long it was supposed to go and it was the conversation you'd had with Jeff Jarrett about how it transpired. And I remember after the match, Kirk sent me a link to it and he said, man, they, I thought he was going to die. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, 
Well, Ric Flair's last match was Ric Flair's idea. Right. Uh, I was supposed to be part of that, and it got cut. It got ended up on the cutting room floor. Um, I was going to do a podcast that morning, a Sunday morning, a pre-show with with uh, with uh, uh, our, our, our friend Conrad uh, up in Nashville with Jerry Jarrett and Jerry Lawler, talking about Memphis wrestling. And as it turned out, it it, it, it got so big that it was a minor player of the game that it happened, which was fun. But uh, Rick initially did not want to win. He didn't want to go out a winner. He wanted to do the he wanted to do the honors for somebody else. I get that. And uh, he was talked into it uh, by several of the wrestlers that said, no, you're you know, one of the greatest of all time. You've got to go out on the win. Uh, that match, uh, Rick trained for it. He had been, you know, he was in the hospital a year and a half ago, two years ago, and they, they thought he would never make it. I mean, he was gone. I mean, and by the grace of God, he and, and Rick is not one that is, even though his physique stayed solid for many years, once he started losing his physique, he lost his physique. But that wasn't because he wasn't going to the gym, it was because of what he was putting into his body. Sure. And, uh, you know, you can't drink a case or two of beer every night and follow it up with a bottle of vodka. You can't? And can't you can't follow it up with 24 shots of bourbon. With, <laughs> oh, yeah, that's bad. Friends, you know. <laughs> Been there, and can't, you know, can't <laughs> Navy guy. But you, you've been there, but you haven't been there 360 like, days. A year. Not like Ric Flair. Exactly. I mean, exactly. after his uh, psychiatrist was talking to him, the psychiatrist wound up on the couch. Yeah. And, uh, but yeah, that match, uh, it was supposed to go 30, 35 minutes, and uh, he blew up in the first two minutes, and they carried him uh, between Jay, between uh, Jeff, and, and his and his. Son-in-law Andre and, and Jay Lethal, they they carried it at the very end, and there was there was concern of him even making it back to the dressing room without help. And, wow! Uh, I, don't, I honestly I never want to see Ric Flair in the ring again. Not because I want to remember Ric Flair as Ric Flair. Yeah, let's let Rick go out and and um and glory. Woo! You know, Woo! yeah, that, that, yeah. that enjoy that enjoy the rest of what you got. That that match was sad. And like Michael said, I watched some videos and stuff, and he he was training with Jay Lethal for, yeah. for quite a while. And he looked like he was in good shape, and then that's what uh, emulates. I, I don't know what happened with him. Uh, I had heard that you know he had he was really hungover uh, going into that match, which he, he was hungover <laughs> a bunch throughout his career. But that limo. at that at that age, when I saw that match, I was just. I felt sorry for, for, for the people that put it on because, uh, and and I felt a, an empathy for for the people that were trying to do the commentary of the match mm -hmm. as well, because you don't want to bring down a, a world hero if you would sure. by explaining what you're yeah. seeing, and uh, that's a difficult scenario to be in. But uh, you know, I, I I compliment the fact that. You know, Rick wanted to go out on his own, and he did. Perhaps not exactly the way he wanted to, but he did. And uh, good stuff. So I just hope he stays retired. I think there was, I think at the beginning it was, it was difficult to find someone who wanted to participate in that. I think they originally talked about Ricky Steamboat. Right. Originally that was. You're right. Steamboat turned it down. Uh, but yeah, it, 
was it was a sad affair. And like I said, you know, Andre and you know, Jeff Jarrett was a, he was the Jay Lethal. They carried the match, and you know, he could flare look like his face was going to explode in any second. Yeah, and he well, was purple I, and red. I think more people were afraid that he was going to have a stroke or a heart attack. Yeah. And that's sad to say, but in, in there's been situations in the ring before where people have died or people have sure. suffered a stroke, and the last thing you want is the, the world's most internationally famous icon to yeah. go down in that way. Yeah, he's up there. You know, I want to mention my number one wrestler is our fraternity brother, John Pearson. Give him a shout-out. I'm sorry Kirk hit you in the head with that metal we, chair. we got to tell that story. So I, I'll, I'll start and you can finish. So we're talking about John. John was a four-time state champ wrestler. Uh, is that a Irwin High School, Birmingham? Brown Blount County. And <laughs> John went on to uh, wrestle at University of Chattanooga. Uh, he stayed there, I think, for a couple years, and he transferred to Jacksonville. And Jacksonville dropped their wrestling program, but yeah, we were lucky enough. For we had another fraternity too, Gary Irwin. Yeah, yeah. Gary Irwin. But John, let me let me tell you about John. At at, it, at his peak there when we were at JSU, he was about five ten, five eleven, one hundred seventy pounds. Uh, you didn't want to mess with him. He was the nicest guy in the world, but. You knew back in that in his mind somewhere that he could take you down and wrap you up like that. There's oh no yeah, and he could put you into a pretzel. He uh, he loved wrestling. He loved professional wrestling, and if you said something bad about professional wrestling, he he would stare you down, and he'd tell you otherwise. But um, you know, we had Greek Week where you could put up. You know, uh, in a sporting event against other fraternities. Right. He always put up wrestling. I remember John got up to about, I think the last time he wrestled down there, he got up to about 180, 85 pounds, and That's they set right. the limit at like 160 for the match. It's like a week before the match, man. He still got this Taco Bell. Yeah, beer belly. Yeah, or, uh, yeah beer belly. Going. I said, hey, man, you better get your ass in the gym and do something. Don't worry about it. I'll make weight. And he did, and and it was laughable what he did to them guys. I mean, it, it was laughable. But the story we're going to get into, we're talking about WrestleMania one. We had everybody at the fraternity house, and like I said, John, we, his nickname is Anvil, and we named him after two things: Jim Anvil, not Hart, and plus he had a hard ass head, and still does today. Yeah, he's a, he's a damn hard head, but he'd give a shirt off his back. That, but. Didn't say anything bad about wrestling, or you were liable to get wrapped up. Oh, so, yeah, he being a full Nelson. Yeah, at, at least. Four, full Nelson. Boxing grab. Yeah, he, he'd, he'd mess you up. But go ahead and, and tell his story. So we're in the point. TV room, and he had been watching professional wrestling on TV, and we've all been drinking beer. I mean, that's what we did. <laughs> a lot. Actually, this was at, at a... At a mixer with a sorority. Yeah, and, but it was after it was wrapping up, but, but there were still people yeah. there. Well, we had metal chairs there for fraternity meetings where we'd set them up, but they were the old school, like, serious. It was folded up, and Pearson thought, you know, he could take a chair to the head. <laughs> and he asked me, he said, face, 
hit me in the head with this chair. And I immediately said, and no. And the chair wasn't gimmicked. Yeah, no, it was a real chair. It was a real chair. And I said, no, because I knew, you know, <laughs> I, I, I didn't want to hit him in the head and wind up with a circumstance. So he asked Kirk, and Kirk sort of took the chair and gave him like a golf tap on the head with a chair. And he said, no, damn it, hit me in the head. Now, Kirk is six foot three. Two used, used to, to be, be used to be three. Always a big fella. He wound that chair up and hit him, and he was John was bent over, braced for it. Yeah, he was like Kirk that. came from the next county with this chair and nailed him square in the head, and Pearson flew five feet across the TV room <laughs> and just his split his forehead oh, open Lord. and was knocked out cold. Well, I left. <laughs> I'm I went to another county, and, and Kirk standing there with the chair. I still but got the chair. In my I head. left after I almost wet my pants laughing so hard. Oh, I was like, Lord. I'm getting out of here. My thought wasn't his safety. My thought was, if this mug wakes up, he's, he's going to kill, kill you. <laughs> so he, he's blood streaming down his forehead, and he just that was his professional wrestling moment. Yes. That was mine, and that was his. Oh, yes. And he never, he, he, he never, he never got mad. He said, he I asked for it, I got it. Yeah. But he took it. He was proud that he could take the lick, even though it knocked him out. Let the professionals do the professional stuff. Yeah, yeah. not a bunch of college <laughs> dumbasses. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 really I think that's a good, uh, you know, that's, that's, that's one of my favorite moments of, of college. That was yeah, fun. Just, that was fun. I appreciate this. This has been a lot of fun. For well, me. Michael, thanks for coming on. We've had Wrestling 101 here. This has been great. Um, Chuck, Kirk, thanks. Brian, uh, thanks for always being here. Don't cut me off until I completely give you the thing. <laughs> like that one. <laughs> so, hey, it was a great moment. Great podcast. Enjoy. Appreciate you very much. We all had fun. Thank you very much. Bye-bye.